This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. At a time when cyber threats seem more prevalent than ever, Colorado wants to position itself as a leader in the cybersecurity world. Governor John Hickenlooper just returned from California, where he met with executives from companies like Dell and Google, in part to showcase the planned National Cybersecurity Center in Colorado Springs. In every single case, they were enthusiastic and supportive and Their first question was, how can we help? How can we get involved? We asked three cybersecurity experts who work in Colorado to join us today to talk about the newest threats to cybersecurity and about the new center. Mark Weatherford is with V Armor. He's also on the board of the center and met with Governor Hickenlooper in California this week. Chris Merritt works for CrowdStrike, and Alex Kryline is with Denver-based SecureSet. Welcome to you all. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks. Chris Merritt, uh, let's start with you. You're the head of threat hunting operations at CrowdStrike. It's a private cybersecurity company. Your firm helped with the investigation into the Democratic Party breaches and traced them to Russia. I understand you can't talk specifically about the case, but when you find out about a cyber attack like this one, how do you go about looking for the culprit? This is a little bit of a I tried to to liken this to, let's say, you take an art thief, for example, a famous art thief. They have a certain sort of tactic or maneuver, methodology they go through to steal the famous art from all these museums around the world. Over time, specialists, forensic scientists, things like that, they're able to determine kind of their their behavior, what they look like. So they know they're able to attribute it to that sort of art thief. And cybersecurity is not too different. We have a lot of folks on my team and our intelligence team at CrowdStrike who kind of recognize the methodology of certain actors. So when my team behaviorally discovers um, somebody doing things that look kind of different than maybe your normal IT guy in a network, we're able to ask questions, dig a little further, talk to our intelligence team, and together we kind of fuse the picture and realize, okay, we know what this looks like. This is actually a a Russian-based attack. And let's turn to Alex Kryline, who's Chief Technology Officer at SecureSet. Among other things, your company has an academy to train workers for the cybersecurity industry. But to this issue of the recent breach of the Democratic Party, why would Russia have an interest in what Democratic operatives are doing in the U.S.? Yes. So to Chris's point, I think he makes a good one that um, one of the first things that you would want to do is trying to find out not just the tactics, techniques, and procedures, but also the motivations of attackers, which is one of the things that we really try and focus on at SecureSet in our education program is to teach people how to do identification analysis, right? And so when we do that and we apply that same type of thinking to the DNC breach, we can see that the motivations of attackers are probably political. Um, it's not likely that there's a lot of information that could be sold or monetized. And so on that basis, you can make a rationalization that the attacker wants to harm the reputation or influence the political outcomes of the upcoming 2016 election. And Mark, can you paint a picture sort of of, of who these attackers are, uh, the ones with political motivations, uh, government officials, and what's their interest, perhaps? And I know where I'm asking you to speculate. Yeah, so speculation does get me in trouble occasionally. Um, I think the the topic of motivation is certainly key here. And, um, you know, this is, I don't think it's anything new in many respects that governments try to influence other governments. Um, so whether this is coming directly from the headman in, uh, in Russia 
or from, uh, you know, people that uh, are trying to curry favor with the government or perhaps work for the government. Um, that's probably uh, the, the genesis of this. And, um, you know, stepping back from the motivation factor, the thing that, that people need to realize is that everyone really is a target, you know, and, and while th- this is obviously a focused target on the DNC, um, everyone should be aware that, uh, that, that they're probably targets as well. And, you know, I, I think, you know, whether you're DNC or RNC or any other public organization or political organization, you should be, a, a, you should suspect that, um, that, you know, these guys are looking at you and looking for you as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, uh, in a few minutes, but, Records from the U.S. Federal Reserve show the agency was the victim of more than 50 cyber breaches between 2011 and 2015. It's not clear what the hackers were after or what they were able to get. Um, There's also, of course, a lot of companies, Target, for example, that have faced financial breaches. Alex and Chris, can you describe who these attackers are that have financial motivations. I'm trying to picture them sitting in an office, sitting in an apartment, uh, trying to hack into a company, for example. Right. This is Chris Merritt. Um, I think what you see here is not going to be too different from the personalities who are engaged in more physical, or we'll call it, you know, in the kinetic world, the real world types of burglary, larceny, things like that. Um, it, it, it's the same sort of persona. I would say that you tend to find these organized rings of cybercrime you know, maybe perhaps more uh, more focused in the Eastern Bloc countries, things like that, where it's more a part of their culture. Um, so, if there's a means to to an if there's a means for a financial end, they will go to those means, regardless of how it's looked ethically internationally. So, I think what you have is is simply a, a pure financial motivation that is supported through a, a, perhaps a national culture that doesn't look is not necessarily looked down upon in that country, but internationally we, we recognize as probably unethical. Uh, Alex, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, so one thing that's kind of interesting is this idea that we have these, like, rings of attackers that sit in, like, warehouses that are darkened and and they're Mm -hmm. unknown by other people. Oftentimes they're quite well-known and and you may not be able to get attribution on the name of the individual, but they try and make themselves public. So a lot of these people will now have Twitter accounts or they'll have websites. What's interesting beyond that, though, and I think really salient to take away is that they're not always creating these kind of custom attacks, right? They're exploiting a bad or lack of enforced policy. Like Mm -hmm. you didn't change a password. You Mm -hmm. didn't update a system's configuration. You didn't do your basic job. And because you either were lazy or ignorant, and it doesn't have anything to do with malice, but it has everything to do with not operating efficiently and, and effectively, they then exploit that basic weakness based on your lack of action. Right. How vulnerable are people, regular folks who have personal computers and, say, make purchases uh, purchases over the Internet, Mark? Well, they're very vulnerable. Uh, and I think it goes exactly to Alex's point is that um, most of the vulnerabilities that are exploited today are not these custom, uh, you know, bespoke type of attacks. They're very common attacks against very common vulnerabilities that people haven't patched their computers. They haven't changed their passwords. Um, they do things that, uh, that you know, are just bad practices uh, in, in our business. And, you know, people take advantage of that. 
Uh, we spoke with the governor uh, yesterday after he returned from the California trip, um, and he told us something you just alluded to, Mark, um, that he kept hearing from experts um, the same thing over and over again on the trip. The new reality is that there are two kinds of companies, those that have been hacked and know about it, and those that have been hacked and aren't yet aware Chris, uh, do you agree with that? Um, does this really mean every company, um, perhaps every individual? I think there is a lot of truth there. I mean, if you, let's take it from the company level. I do believe pretty much every company out there has been attacked, whether it's a nation-state-sponsored intrusion or a, a breach that you'd hear about in, the, in public discourse. Maybe not. But are they being attacked for other financial motivations, targeted or even untargeted? Sure, I definitely believe it. Individuals, I would say by and large, if you haven't experienced an attack yet, you will, whether it's from your um, whoever holds your payment processing systems or credit cards, things like that. Um, if you haven't experienced that yet, you will at some point. And you've mentioned that, um, Mark, you mentioned changing your password, um, making sure, you know, you're doing that regularly. Uh, do you have the sense that folks are doing that or, um, you know, they're just thinking it's not going to happen to them? I'd love to hear Alex's take as far as what he recommends from his from his training program. But from my perspective, I would say it doesn't really happen that often. Or if it does happen, there's a reuse of passwords across all kinds of accounts. Alex, what's your perspective on this? Yeah, most people um, use passwords that they can easily memorize, which means that the ability to use a complex password is tied to your intellect. Um, computers vastly exceed the kind of computational abilities of most people. So that means that it's really easy to break simple passwords. So changing them often, using complex passwords, using a password generator or password manager is really important. And then also doing basic things like updating your home router and your Wi-Fi password at home. Like if you work from home, your home router, which is something that is usually $59 that can be bought at Best Buy, is easily exploited. And on that basis, if you don't manage it and take care of it, then you now become the vulnerability for your corporation. Now, this may be ignorant here, but how do you get a computer-generated password? Um, you can use products. Uh, there are a great number of them from LastPass to 1Password to, um, you know, uh, Ubico and others. Um, and you can buy them very inexpensively or they're free. And uh, usually what they have is a little plug-in that sits in your browser, and you tap the button, and it auto enters your username and your password for you, and it's generally pretty secure. We're talking about cybersecurity in Colorado's new National Cybersecurity Center based in Colorado Springs, and we have three cybersecurity experts with us today. Chris Merritt is with CrowdStrike, Alex Kryline is with SecureSet, and Mark Weatherford is with V-Armor. He's also on the board of directors of the Cybersecurity Center and met with Governor Hickenlooper in California this week. Mark, I want to give people a better idea of what the center is designed to do. It'll have a research, education, and training component to boost the number of workers in the field. There will apparently also be support for government officials in the area of cybersecurity, and it'll have a rapid response team to help address security breaches at companies and government entities. What might the center be able to do to prevent a future breach like the one involving the Democratic Party? Uh, a couple of things. So you mentioned the three pillars of the National Cybersecurity Center, the, um, and every one of them are important. I think that the uh, uh, probably one of the things that 
um, that I struggled with when I was a government official, both in state government and federal government, was getting the attention of legislators and senior government officials. So one of the pillars of, uh, of the center is to um, create that uh, education and awareness component that we can reach out to government officials around the nation um, and take that message to them uh, and bring them here to Colorado to share that message with them. Uh, and certainly, the, you know, the research and education part, uh, a number of universities and, and academic institutions around the country are engaged in a variety um, of, of cybersecurity uh, research. And uh, I think what we hope to do there is bring some synergies amongst all of those organizations and some maybe aggregate or put some focus on the aggregation of that research. And Alex, one of the things your company, SecureSet, does is to train people to work in the field. What's the gap between the number of people working in cybersecurity and the numbers that are needed? Well, what we do know is that there's about 12,000 open jobs that involve cybersecurity in the state of Colorado alone, somewhere mm-hmm. just around 120,000 nationally and about 1.2 million internationally. So it's a really great market for people who are looking to lateral move in, like out of networking or programming and want to get involved in the te- technical skill set. One thing I'd say, though, is that it's not as technically hard to get started as people believe. You, most people think that you have to be some wizard in computer programming to do it, and it's helpful for sure. But you can come to any number of programs um, to learn skills that will be education and not just weekend training that will actually be helpful, like ours, SecureSet, or any number of others nationally. Um, and without the lack of trained people, then you know we're going to see a persistent increase in the number of exploitation of major organizations like the DNC. And when you see the loss of manufacturing jobs in the country, you know, are these jobs that can fill that gap? It depends on what you've done previously. So, uh, for example, we've, you know, we've unfortunately lost a number of jobs in the oil and natural gas sector. Um, And many, many people who have interviewed at SecureSet and even student, current students at SecureSet have come out of oil and natural gas. In manufacturing, it might be more difficult. Um, it's not unachievable. It's really helpful to remember that all this stuff was created by humans, which means that you as a human being can also learn it. Yeah, I completely agree if I can jump in here too. I, I, when I hire for my team, I hire from a variety of skill sets. There are a lot of transferable backgrounds based off. If you, if you like analysis, you could be doing analysis in the oil and natural gas industry. We can probably use you if you enjoy talking to people, things like that. If you enjoy kind of going through the sleuth action, that kind of thing. We find those skills very valuable, and I, I do employ them today. And in terms of this gap um, in the number of uh, folks that are available and the number of jobs, Mark, is this something the center can address? Yeah, I think, uh, again, this is, you know, the, the, the component of the Center for um, Educating Government Officials. We've, you know, we've been saying this for years. We really need the government to step behind, and, and I don't mean from a regulatory perspective, but the government to step behind and start promoting um, the the education and the hiring of people. Um, you, one of the things, that, you know, to kind of to Alex's point, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to get started in this business. Um, and a, a lot of organizations, especially the federal government, quite frankly, um, raise the bar too high to get into the business. Um, many organizations are still requiring a college degree for people to get uh, a job in the federal government, and it's simply not required. And 
Alex, can the center be competitive in recruiting good talent? Um, I imagine a government-funded office um, may not be able to pay as much as the private sector. So uh, it depends on what people are motivated by. So um, like Mark, I also came out of the federal government, and my motivation was not financial, obviously. I mean, very obviously, if you look (laughs) at the government pay scale, right? Uh, But if your motivation is based on the mission, then it gives you an opportunity to you know, work at any number of places like the National Cybersecurity Center. Um, There's also ways that you can collaborate with organizations like that without being employed there, right? And I think that's, you know, one really important part, which is this is a a not an entirely large community. We all rely on each other's efforts to be helpful to stop bad actors. And I'm sure that the NCC would embrace people just stepping up and wanting to be helpful and figuring out a way. And this issue of uh, local, say, county and city governments being vulnerable to attacks and not being uh, necessarily trained to be able to respond, um, the governor talked about this uh, in our interview yesterday. Most cities and towns, most counties, while they have some resiliency, they're not really ready to respond, and there are exceptions, but in most cases, they're not ready to respond to a uh, a cyber breach of on 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 a large scale. Chris, um, what are the risks to Coloradans if, say, a county government is the target of a cyber attack? You know, I, I think it's it. I would say it's it's high. Um, when you look at uh, state, local, federal um, organizations, I mean, they they're bound to be attacked by someone who's motivated for 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 some reason to go after them. Um, I like what the government had to say. I, I think. The point where an attack is discovered, there's a new set of problems, and that is you actually have to respond, and you respond well. You do a good job of kicking the attackers out of your network and then doing what you need to do to make sure it doesn't happen again. So this organ- you know, what we're doing in Colorado Springs, I think, is going to be a pretty big boon for efforts like that. And, uh, Mark, I imagine the hope is that this new Colorado-based center will help um, small businesses who can't pay the cost of hiring cyber experts like all of you. Yeah, I uh, so I have a phrase. I call it the uh, the Fortune 500 and the unfortunate 5,000. You know, the Fortune 500. Quite frankly, I worry less about than the unfortunate 5,000 because the it's a resource issue. Um, you know, and going back to your comment of a second ago about local governments, most local government organizations, the IT person is one person. Um, and that one person is trying to do everything, and they simply don't have the resources, many times the skills, um, to understand how they would either protect or defend against um, a, a cyber-related event. So, yeah, the the um, the center is going to have a huge impact on the ability to get this kind of information out to to small and medium businesses and local governments. And uh, to the effect on you know, your average Coloradan um, who uh, might uh, live in a county that's hacked? I mean, how does that affect an individual? Well, I, you know, I I used to say this um, often that I think the government has a higher responsibility to citizens than the private sector does because uh, citizens don't have a choice in the kind of information that they share with the government. They can make a decision to walk into a store and, and share their credit card information or not. They can't make that the same decision when it comes to the government sharing much of your personal information, you know, with the IRS, with DMV, with healthcare. So the government has a much higher responsibility, in my opinion, to protect citizens' information. Thanks to all of you for being with us.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mark Weatherford is Chief Cybersecurity Strategist for vArmor, a data center and cloud security company. He's also on the board of the new National Cybersecurity Center being planned in Colorado Springs. Alex Kryline is with Denver-based SecureSet, which trains people to work in cybersecurity. And Chris Merritt is with the cybersecurity company CrowdStrike. Just ahead, a reporter learns what it feels like to read when you have dyslexia. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. What does it feel like to sit in a school classroom and not be able to read what's in front of you? The words just look wrong. Hundreds of Denver area teachers have been getting a sense of what it feels like to be dyslexic. It's part of a program to boost their awareness. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine came away from the training with some new understanding. I'd forgotten what it's like to be in school, learning to read. Um, I'm going to have each of you read either a sentence or part of a sentence out loud. I was always a pretty good student, could grasp the material in front of me, one of the kids teachers could ignore. Do you? But now, decades later, surrounded by a group of teachers trying to read a simple elementary school story. You like being... I felt dumb. The letters were unrecognizable. I didn't know the sounds connected to the characters, much like a dyslexic. A couple of teachers in my group seemed to catch on to some code they'd figured out that helped them translate the written chaos. But most of us couldn't. The experience actually takes you through trying to decode something that's not familiar to you and say, okay, try to decipher what that is. That's Terry Noland, a national director with Learning Ally. It's a national nonprofit that hosts these simulations for teachers. The session mimics the emotional experience of a dyslexic student. Did you, did you get your homework done last night or were you busy? The teacher, the person running the simulation, tells us to read fast or will miss recess. We feel worse when she says that. And so it provides that sense of empathy in order to understand what it's like when students are accessing text. Learning Ally doesn't train teachers how to teach dyslexic children. But since Colorado doesn't have screening for dyslexia in public schools, it lets teachers know dyslexia's warning signs. Other sessions showcase strategies to learn the rules that dyslexic students need to succeed. The program that's offered in most Denver schools and is starting in 11 Jefferson County schools offers academic materials in a huge audiobook library. Literature, math, and science texts read aloud so students can keep pace with their peers. Back at the simulation, I discover something else as I struggle to read. I was so slow in catching on to the code of what was going on that I was not even following what the story was about. Even after just 45 minutes of the simulation, we are all frustrated. Some even get a little snarky and defiant. And teachers realize that's what happens in their classrooms. Out, cutting down, avoidance, Who cares? angry, or just The hoping. instructor ask the teachers how they feel after the exercise. So is everyone ready to go for another no. another test? I was done after two. Yep, two right. chances. The third one, I'm I like, really? Yeah, like, oh, what's the point? I'm not going to be able to do it. So yeah. what's the point? So here we've got kids class after class after class. One big challenge and three tries, and they're ready to be done. Right. I mean, that emotional strength just... Do you feel it just kind of disappear? During another exercise, we have to write while only looking at our hand in a mirror. Oh, brother. 
Special education teacher Jackie Nervick says for the first time, she really feels the exhaustion her students do and realizes they need more breaks. She'd like to see all regular classroom teachers do this exercise. Special ed teachers often talk to them about giving certain kids less or no homework or shorter assignments. They don't understand the exhaustion piece and the behavioral issues that come from being exhausted. And the teachers have a new understanding of how things they've all said in class might be heard by students. Do your best, make good learning choices, follow Teacher along. educator Barb Delcup realizes now those lines probably aren't helping her students. She and the other teachers talk about new approaches. Delcup says teachers try to be empathetic, but... We often feel the pressures that the school environment and the school culture place on teachers. Therefore, we place it on the children to perform at a certain level, which makes it extremely difficult. Today, though, teachers are learning teaching strategies and skills, even as simple as not interrupting students when they're focused on a task. Okay, that's a P. I Back to me, struggling with the scrambled text. The teacher next to me whispers the word I was stuck on. Pleasant. Pleasant village. The group cheers as I finish. Sadly, something that probably wouldn't happen in a real classroom. But we leave class today finally understanding a little bit how it feels to be a child struggling in a classroom. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. Find more of our education reporting from Jenny Brundine at cprnews.org. Now time for Loud and Clear, when we get your feedback. The United Methodist Church gets its first openly gay bishop next month. That's when Karen Olivetto moves to Colorado, where she'll take a post in the Rocky Mountain region. After our conversation with Olivetto, Ann Weller of Fernandina Beach, Florida, wrote on CPR.org that she is, quote, so proud of her and of our church for moving forward in this world. It is about how you treat others and how you impact the world, not who you lay next to in bed at night. But church officials could still say Olivetto's election is invalid. Lakewood's Charles Schuster wrote on Facebook, As a pastor in the Rocky Mountain Conference, I would hope people from other jurisdictions would let Bishop Olivetto do her job. We are delighted to have her as our Episcopal leader. However, Daryl Horton of Sherwood, Arkansas replied, There is no first gay bishop. Her election is illegal and will not stand. Last week, we talked about wildfires with the U.S. Forest Service's Curtis Heaton. The Beaver Creek Fire in northern Colorado has burned about 37,000 acres, and much of it beetle-kill pine. Heaton says the dead trees are unstable and create a sort of jungle gym that firefighters have to work through. And so you have to crawl over logs, you have to crawl underneath logs, and it's just very slow and very tedious. John Kincaid, a Muffet County commissioner, asked on Facebook, why not remove the dead trees? Heaton says Colorado's dealt with approximately 51,000 acres through timber sales, thinning, and prescribed fires. He says the Forest Service wants to do twice that amount next year. 
And Patricia McClelland of Denver asked why we didn't mention climate change during our conversation about wildfires. We asked Heaton about this, and he says he has seen changes due to climate change during his 30-year career. That includes fire seasons beginning earlier in the spring and lasting longer into the fall, greater swings in drought, and longer periods without rainfall across the West. Studies have also shown that the warming climate created a pine beetle baby boom in Colorado, impacting the state's lodgepole pines. Finally, earlier this week, I talked with a man who travels the globe chasing solar eclipses. Turns out he's not the only one. I think I've got seven or nine solar eclipses and have spent way too much money chasing them, even on the ocean and stuff. That's listener Rainer Hanschel of Denver. He offered his tips for watching an eclipse, like the one that'll be visible from Wyoming next year. You can forget all the technical stuff with the solar eclipse. It's a very visceral thing. You got to be around people, dogs, cats, and birds. And uh, it's an exciting thing. Keep your reflections about our coverage coming. We're CPR News on Facebook, at Colorado Matters on Twitter, and you can reach us by clicking contact at cprnews.org. Coming up, punk rockers with a hint of Latin America. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Listen to music by Boulder's The Effingies, and you'll pick up influences from Green Day and the Dead Kennedys. She stood up and smiled like a devil. What we got knows what she had in mind. And God, how I love her. This is called 17. It's off the FNG's forthcoming album, The Unfortunate Life of Bob, a guideline to dying amongst the living. This is the punk rock trio's first full album release. It's out next month. And we get a preview today with singer and guitarist Ivan Armendariz, his brother Christian, who plays the drums, and bass player Alex Flynn. Welcome to you all. Uh, The Unfortunate Life of Bob, A Guideline to Dying Amongst the Living, follows a fictional character. His name is Bob. And you all recorded this in Arizona. Ivan, is it true a face graffitied onto a trash can partially inspired this album? Yes. Concept-wise, we uh, were definitely influenced by some street art that we found on a garbage can. But uh, musically, at least sonically speaking, we had most of the material... Um, crafted out, visualized, at least on the side of instrumentation and vocals and lyrics um, when we were heading down to Arizona. But uh, we weren't really sure what the product was going to be when it came out, whether it was um, really just garage demos or what have you, whatever the album was going to be. And uh, that just really lit a flame under us to push for a sort of concept record. And what way did the image inspire you? Um, I think there was a lot of doubt the first day we were there after the first night talking to the guys we were working with and um, we just wandering the streets were asking the question over and over, why are we here and what are we doing and is this worth it? And um, the face really captured this sort of anxiety that we were having about the entire trip and really what we're trying to do as musicians. And it kind of spoke to us. It was almost like looking in a mirror, realizing that's what we look like. And it just... Um, I don't know, it was almost uh, calming and cathartic to look at it and really be able to visualize maybe what we hadn't realized the project was going to be about. And it just, yeah, kind of comforting. 
Uh, I understand this album is like a soundtrack for Bob's fictional life. Christian, um, tell us about this Bob guy. Well, Bob is... It, it, li- it goes through his life, pretty much, and he's a... I don't want to say a failure, but he kind of is a failure in his life because he gets stuck living a job that he can't stand, living a life he can't stand, even though his life before when he was younger was happy and he was in love, he was, he was enjoying himself. And it, it, it turns into into an album when it starts out happy, you, you get out, well, it starts out with the song, you learn about what's like, you know, the current times, murder headlines, you know, what's going on in our world, mm-hmm. death, massacres, doesn't, it, it it helps put you in the situation. Now imagine you're young, enjoying high school. You know, you fall in love with a girl or a guy. And you're like, wow, I feel like I'm on top of the world right now. And it, it, it walks through those steps to the point where he thinks, this is going to be my life forever. I'm going to have this happiness. And then it keeps going. It flashes forward into, into a few songs where it turns into him just being stuck at a job, at a life that he can't stand. Is that a fear that you've had? You know, a happy youth and then things going downhill? It has been. I mean, it, I feel like it's a fear for a lot of people getting stuck somewhere where they don't want to be. Being lost in a endless nine-to-five job, not being able to do what they want to do, not being able to succeed in what they love. It, it's They're put into kind of like a like a machine, a grinder that just puts them through the system and next thing you know when they're worn out, well, that's it. You're too old to do what you want to do or you're not able to do what you could have done in your youth. Let's hear some more music, starting with Murder Headlines, the first track off the album. Ivan, you wrote this song. How does it set the tone for the rest of your album? Um, so it does kind of stand out from the concept. It really stands alone, actually. Um, it doesn't necessarily follow the story of Bob, but rather, I think what Christian was saying, sets a scenario almost like uh, an opening number to a musical. And uh, it just, it fit in, I think, because, like he had said, it sets this scenario, it really puts the story in play and kind of makes it realistic for a listener something to be able to jump into and say, I understand where Bob is coming from, and I can kind of understand where maybe what he becomes is influenced by his society and the norms of that time period. Yeah. You formed the FNGs in early 2013. The new album comes out in late September, and it's your full first full release. Alex, why wait this long to release it? Um, I think part of it is the entire time since we've become the FNGs, we've kind of we have been working with these very songs and kind of trying to discover who we are as a band and what exactly we want to do with our image and what we want to do with the music. Um, so this natu- or this uh, album, I feel naturally came to us um, and it kind of naturally developed into what it is now. Um, so I think with time, without waiting so long, it wouldn't be what it is now. Um, every, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the song Riot, uh, which seems like a turning point sort of in Bob's life. Charm you with 
my boys in puncture and sway with my own God's scripture and written in my sleepless whining from a pen to a mouth to a riot. Alex, this is sort of a moment of upheaval for Bob. Is that right? Yeah, I'd feel like it's kind of the moment where he kind of goes, he kind of realizes what he's in and he's kind of stuck in a rut and he kind of wants to overcome it at this point. Um, So I think this is kind of almost like his midlife crisis in a way where he realizes he wants to do something better with the rest of his life and he does want to change it. And um, Ivan, I understand uh, you were all feeling a lot of tension and you alluded to this earlier when you recorded the song. What was going on? Uh, To write specifically? Yeah, um, kind of a technologically based uh, struggle. Uh, Just we were bouncing around a couple different rooms for drum tracking and this was the last night and we were not used to the situation or this kind of uh, rigorous schedule of 7 p.m. to 3 in the morning recording. And so naturally we were a little thrown off and uh, reaching the last night a little burnt out and had some technological issues, took a while to set the drums up. And when we finally got to it, we were just extremely frustrated and pissed off. And so there was a lot of just tension in the room with all the guys who were trying to make it work. And um, I think a little fear on their side uh, that they were kind of wronging us. And it was just really a non-spoken relationship for that entire night. And we just busted out the last few songs. And uh, I think the record captured a lot of that aggression. And um, But yeah, just really tense uh, engineer, musician kind Mm. of just struggle so maybe it helped motivate you. Yeah, it uh, it actually yeah. like worked out super well. It was probably the two tracks we would have wanted that kind of aggression, and it happened in a accidental situation that just was perfect. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Ivan Armendariz, his brother Christian, and Alex Flynn of the Boulder-based band The Effingies. Their forthcoming album is The Unfortunate Life of Bob, A Guideline to Dying Amongst the Living. It's out next month, and today we're getting a preview. Did you three grow up listening to a lot of punk rock? Yes. um, I think all three of us did grow up listening to a lot of Green Day my Chemical Romance, stuff like that. So it definitely has influenced our sound today. And Christian? It, yeah, I mean, Green Day was what me and Ivan started listening to at first. We really liked the way it, you know, it's just fast. I don't care what you think. I'm going to just say what I want to say and do what I want to do. And then with My Chem, it helped us, you know, kind of grasp a bigger, wider theatrical version of it, with the Black Parade and everything. And then that just kind of pushed us to be like, hey, Let's do it. I mean, so, yeah. Ivan, do you consider yourself a diehard punk rocker? <laughs> um, I think that if I stepped into a real punk scene that was outside of Denver, they they just kick me out. We are, <laughs> I don't think we prescribe to the image or fashion or even attitude of most punks. I think it's what we've derived from most of the music really is this sort of... Um, emotions on your sleeves and be proud of what you are and i think that maybe even the artists we listen to aren't what would be classified as a real punk but i think that labels aside we emulate and feel the same way that a lot of that music um was written or was performed or was influenced by and uh yeah 
And, and when you perform live, is is it a physical thing, perhaps like it is with other punk rock bands? Do you play your instruments hard? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think maybe that's where the most of that punk attitude comes through is this uh, I do not care sort of performance. Um, there's a lot of antics jumping around, a lot of um, spastic motion, really uh, just frantic yeah. energy, you know. Play hard, fast, and loud. You know what I mean? Keeping keeping the jive going, keeping people going so that, you know, more pumps they get, the more pumped you get. So I'm going to hit it harder, louder, faster. <laughs> Super sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> and Ivan and Christian, I understand you both grew up listening to musicians from Latin America. And while it's really subtle, these artists do influence your music. Like this song, Creepy Corpses in My Closet. And as I said, this Latin influence is pretty subtle. Um, Ivan, describe how these Latin American artists from your childhood show up in your music. Well, um, being raised Mexican-American, my parents having immigrated from Mexico at a young age, um, they brought with them a lot of their culture, their influence, their childhood, their music, their art. And we were raised simultaneously speaking and listening to English and um, Mexican and Latin music. And... um, I don't know, maybe it's the rhythm that comes through to me that speaks this sort of percussive dance. There's this waltz, there's this tango that happens a lot. Right now you can feel that the bass line really moves with body rhythms and it has this just very, oh, it's spicy. I don't know. <laughs> and um, it is subtle, but I think that as we go forward, it's something we're going to try to push a little farther into our writing. But I think, yeah, just the drum, dram, wow, dramatic essence of the lyricism um, and just some of that musical rhythm that really flows with, I think, body motion is what I picked out of Latin music. And yeah, uh, but a lot of your music has dark, introspective lyrics. And Ivan, as a songwriter, what draws you to those kinds of lyrics? Um, I don't know. I think that we live at a time where there is less at least in my personal life, I've seen a lot less death than I think most generations have. And I think it's almost this fascinating, creepy obsession with something that's not really real to me. And maybe because I haven't fully experienced it in my personal life, it's something that I'm just at awe with. And I question and I wonder, you know, what happens after this life? And and is what we do here really worth it? And if we merely are just a shell of particles, then is any of this going to matter? Am I going to remember this? And so I think that fear and that just wonder at all of it kind of inspires these very dark and creepy um, thoughts and lyrics. And uh, I think furthermore, I don't sleep a lot and I stay up really late and you just, you know, good time to think when you're by yourself. (laughs) Well, let's go out with one last song. Um, Would one of you very briefly set up, this is just a rough draft uh, and in parentheses, it says videotapes. It's the final song on the album and it really has a very different sound. 
Um, yeah. So it was, uh, that was one of those, that last moment we decided was going to fit into the, um, the album and it just challenges everything we've done before acoustic solo song. And it just, uh, it sort of is this afterlife moment where Bob has, you know, the last breath and decides this was why I did this. Ivan Armendaris, his brother Christian, and Alex Flynn are the bolder punk rock band The F&Gs. Their forthcoming album is The Unfortunate Life of Bob, A Guideline to Dying Amongst the Living. It's out next month, and you can catch The F&Gs this Saturday at the Field Day Camp Show music event in Brighton, northeast of Denver. Just ahead, rising rents in Denver means some artists have to relocate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. As more people move to Denver, the city's River North neighborhood has been experiencing some growing pains. The area has long been a haven for artists in in search of cheap rents. But as CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones explains, some artists are having to find new homes. Inside Rule Gallery, a few people huddle around an old electronic on a work table. I have it coming out of this one. And I've got Wait, yellow. see something? Oh. Something's not working, so they change wires and turn knobs until... Let's try three. <gasps> ah, <yeah>. Success! <laughs> That's Denver artist Chris Bagley. We just resurrected an old television that looks like a space helmet. Bagley wants the vintage TV to display the name of the current exhibition at Rural Gallery. It's called... Between Stations. Bagley says it's a nod to when one AM radio signal bleeds into another, and you're stuck between the two stations. It was a good metaphor for what's happening to all of us getting kicked out of this space. This show is the last for Rural in the River North neighborhood, or Rhino, where the gallery has been for five years. The whole block was bought by a developer that plans to rebuild. This has happened before in Rhino, which has transformed from an industrial area to a booming arts district. But now, widespread development has forced some to leave. Rule is one of three galleries that announced departures from Rhino this summer. It's been highly stressful as a gallerist because you can't really plan your exhibitions out. You can't really do your full job when you don't know where you're going to land. That's Valerie Santerly. She owns Rule. The gallery's namesake, Robin Rule, is remembered as a contemporary art visionary who co-founded her first Denver gallery in the late 80s. She was a tastemaker and uh, intimidated a lot of people. I think she was a very powerful woman. She was also a risk taker, Santerly says. The gallery has tried to carry on that legacy, and it shows with Between Stations. We have digital projection, we have analog, we have sculpture, works on paper. It's a really diverse show. The show features four artists, including Steve Legg, who goes by Slegg. The artist says it's bittersweet to be a part of this show. Everything's changing, and all this stuff is going to be Starbucksy and condominiums, you know, ripping up cool places like this. So. That frustrates you? Yeah, because I think we're so eager to trash anything old just to build new and different and neat and expensive. 
yeah, things change. You know, that's how the world is. Tracy Weil is creative director for the Rhino Art District, which he co-founded 11 years ago. Back then, the group had around $8,000. Now, the district's budget is more than a million dollars. That's because in November, the neighborhood voted to create a business improvement district that places a small tax on property owners, which benefits the creative sector. Weil says it was a game changer for Rhino. Developers are now realizing that art can activate a community and help fix up an area that may be disregarded, and it's important to keep those artists around, which is great. In fact, the art district is working with the developer that bought the site where Rural Gallery stands. Weil says the developer has agreed to add some affordable spaces for artists. The Rhino Art District also worked out a deal for Rule to stay in the building for another year, but the gallery had already found a new space in Denver. Owner Valerie Santerly says she'll miss the Rhino Art District and all of its support. But she says relocating is nothing new for Rule Gallery, which has now moved more than 10 times. And that's one thing that Robin Rule taught me, is you have to just keep moving forward. Santerly says this is a chance for Rule to reinvent itself. And the gallery will do that in September, when it opens its new space in Denver off of Santa Fe Drive. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. The exhibition Between Stations runs at Rural Gallery through Saturday. The gallery has announced its first show at its new space. Wish You Were Here will feature work by Denver artist Scott Young. The exhibition opens September 23rd. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR's Colorado Matters.